it's a tory government, it's an austerity regime, it's the police killing a person of colour and then there being some element of cover up or like lack of justice afterwards welcome to surviving society with chantal and tiso britain's regressing to the 19th century and doing it with our eyes open Hello everyone, welcome to Simon Society. <laughs> Do you know what, now I'm speaking, I don't actually think it's going to happen, but I thought I was going to have to apologise for my croaky voice, because I'm fresh, it's fresh from the bank holiday, fresh from carnival, well not really fresh, as in my voice box is damaged <laughs> from carnival, as of my legs. But yeah, thank you for joining us, or continuing to join us, we are really excited to be here with... <laughs> Chloe Peacock, soon to be Dr. Chloe Peacock. I mean, she's frowning at me, but she's right. She's writing up. At some point, she's writing up, so it won't be long. Really excited to have Chloe on this episode. I met Chloe when I first started the PhD. How long do we start? How long ago do we start now? It must be like three years ago. Now, three, isn't it? three years ago, and we met. And you had done your master's dissertation on Michael Gove's speech. Yes. And I had done my master's dissertation on David Cameron's speech. On the riots. On the right, on the yeah, London yeah. riots. Yeah. And we were, yeah, that was really interesting chatting yeah. about that. But yeah, sorry, digress. Chloe, tell us about your PhD research and what we're going to be discussing today. Okay, so it is, it is actually very connected to that conversation that we had. Mm-hmm. So basically, I'm looking at the criminal justice system's response to the riots in 2011 in England but more specifically in London really mm-hmm. and what I'm interested in so I think you guys will probably remember it was like this big kind of law and order backlash where the state pretty much closed down the debate about what the riots were about and it was like I think everyone remembers David Cameron saying it's criminality pure and simple mm-hmm. and that was their definition and they wanted to treat it as a law and order issue and that was it so the response was primarily get people arrested into court protest and like largely into custodial sentences as quick as possible so what I'm interested in is in like really broad terms the political and cultural moment or kind of context that made that response possible in big terms. And yeah. actually, in terms of what I've been doing, my research has been interviewing practitioners. So a combination of prosecutors, civil servants, and some sentencers, also some defence lawyers, and some people who worked in probation and youth offending services. So people who kind of worked in the criminal justice system, um, and who were making decisions about that response, kind of leading it and delivering it in different ways but all kind of involved in actually delivering it i would say Chloe, is it possible to like contextualize that moment because i think i don't know if some of our listeners might have been really young when it happened so yeah, yeah. Really understand. that's a good point yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah it's what eight years ago now yeah much exactly mm-hmm. i'll talk about this later but what's been really interesting is how bits of it have stayed really fresh and bits of it have fallen away and people have forgotten. Mm-hmm. But anyway. It is interesting though, because for some people they'll be like, oh, the riots happened, like people got, like stole loads of stuff. But yeah. in my head, the I, I when I think about London riots, I think of the unlawful killing of Mark Duggan. Right. That's my immediate right. like, reaction. Yeah, so yeah, I mean that, yeah. exactly, that was what started it basically mm-hmm. in Tottenham. So I think it was the 4th of August, I think it was mm-hmm. 2011. Um, yeah, the... Metropolitan Police Force did this hard stop on on Mark Duggan's uh, taxi that he was travelling in. He was suspected of carrying a gun. Um, Whether or not he was has never really been ascertained, but what has been proven really was that he wasn't armed, but Mm -hmm. it ended up in him being shot dead at 
close range by the police. Um, and then there was um, a very long delay before his family were informed that he'd been killed and then a very kind of long process of lack of clarity around what had happened to him um, and a lot of misinformation about what had happened as well um, that basically put the blame on him and didn't acknowledge what had actually happened. So that kind of um, led to initially peaceful protests by his family and community in Tottenham that then kind of became gradually kind of turned into what were called then the riots. Started off as quite specifically kind of demonstrations against the police and the police station um, in, in Tottenham. Every way of describing it is really loaded because there's so much like political baggage mm. in how the timeline and the kind of patterns of causation are described. But like to put it in really broad terms, how it's been described as then like a series of copycat riots around the country over the next sort of few days. How did that happen? Because normally, in the context of historical rights that happen, especially in London, the Brixton rights, they they remain quite localised, mm. Brixton, Tottenham. Mm. But in this one, there seems to be a kind of a kind of spontaneous rise in the rights all around London, right? And in, I suppose, what you would call urban areas. Mm-hmm. So, happened in Bow and bits and pieces like that. So Birmingham. Birmingham. So, yeah. is it... Yeah, quite a few uh, yeah, different towns. Some would argue something like the technology plays a part in that. Yeah. Okay, and social media. But is it a kind of wider context into, like, a kind of... What, does it speak to a wider malaise that people are reacting to? I think so. And I think this has been... This is what so much of the research has focused on there has been I mean like when I look at the sort of folder that I've got of academic journal articles and book chapters and books that are looking at why did the riots happen there is like literally hundreds if not thousands of articles from different perspectives and I think I can't remember who it was as a criminologist who called it like it's like a criminological like Rorschach test you know the like psychological mm. inkblot test <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah where basically it doesn't necessarily have like any fixed meaning in and of itself but mm. you will interpret it in line with your own perspectives and what you want to see in it in a way mm-hmm. so I've kind of like yes absolutely it happened in a moment of it was like a year into the coalition government so like austerity was starting to bite and there'd been like cuts in place already mm-hmm. and I think like yeah you've got to put it in that context to start to understand it Um, And in, like, a much longer history of, like, police brutality and police racism. Like, you can't separate it from that. I think what is really interesting about your PhD and how it sort of fits well into what we've been talking about a lot this summer on the podcast is sort of redirecting our focus onto the people that haven't been studied, as in the people's actions, people's thoughts, and how they react to the black community like uh, urban spaces what they do to police those people and that's what I feel like is really good about Chloe's work is it's effectively looking at whiteness and its structures how it creates moments and how over time it just debilitates people and people obviously eventually like there's something clicks and you're like you know what fuck this I feel like you've been reading what I've what I've been <laughs> but, um, but yeah, basically that is it. Like, so there's been, like I said, like tons of research on what the riots were about. Some of it 
pretty useless and like really simplistic and some of it really critical and like really um helpful in terms of understanding like the bigger um political context and power structures that i think led to that moment but in a way like i'm not trying to intervene in that like, no. like you say it's sort of like trying to like in a way turn the sociological gaze upwards i guess i was gonna, I was gonna say it's the gaze but yeah as sociologists the gaze is always at the marginalized right mm. right it's, that's where we and our kind of discipline is based on that kind of notion that we're looking at we're studying groups of people that are oppressed or mm-hmm. outside the system and on one thing why they're reacting mm-hmm. like that but not really turn to the gaze to the middle i guess yeah. Which and it, those with power. But that's a more difficult question because it's harder to penetrate, right? Because they're usually quite unreflective, or uncritical of what of their reactions because it's normalised. It's normal to them. Mm. So how do you frame those questions? Mm. Or how have you framed those questions? Good Chloe? question. Yeah. yeah, and it's it has been really difficult. I mean, it's been quite difficult in terms of accessing those people mm-hmm. although not as difficult as I thought it would be it's sort of like a methodological question I suppose in terms of like how to read their accounts because a lot of the people who I was interviewing are people who are very articulate very used to speaking in public very used to giving certain accounts of things especially mm. lawyers if you think about people who are standing up in court and giving like a persuasive account or like narrative of what happened that makes a very specific point so in a way what I've had to do is like my interviews with them I'm not treating them necessarily as like what those people deeply believe in their heart and soul quite often what would happen is that people would give me like a very so I'd start off quite general and you know say to them I'm interested in how the criminal justice system responded to the riots, what were the challenges that it posed for you, and you know, what do you think now, in hindsight, of that response? And people would generally, depending who they were, people quite often had like these very polished narratives that more or less said we responded exactly right. <clears throat> in fact, I think someone said it was an overwhelming success you know we did everything right they said success the word success yeah absolutely and people were quite proud of it but no but contextualize (laughs) if i was them from their point of view that makes sense it's a to them it's a law and order response and one of the things you're damaging and you can never damage in in english law is property Mm -hmm. some property laws we take them very seriously because property enshrined by fighting political theory from Locke and all this it's very important to an english person especially the further up you go up into the kind of legal system. Mm. So I guess your understanding is how decoded the language is. When they're speaking about property and their response, who are they talking about? Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, a lot of it exactly is looking at what is not said and mm. what is kind of coded in how people talked. So, yes, for a lot of people, it was unproblematically a success, you know, and they dealt with it quickly and efficiently and brought the riots to an end, and that was what mattered but quite often as we like went on in the conversation and people relaxed a little bit um actually some people were quite reflective and that was really interesting because actually then the question was not just how do they kind of justify and like normalize and naturalize and rationalize what was actually a very violent and like inherently harmful and racist and class-based response But actually, when people were more reflective, some of them were saying, actually, I know that 
like short prison sentences don't work. Actually, I know that prisons are harmful, but then they had to find other ways to rationalise it. So then it was like people do kind of have some sort of awareness that actually the system that they're working in is like not effective for either in terms of rehabilitation, definitely, but even probably in terms of like keeping society safe, which is the big overall story that they they tell about what the criminal justice system is for quite often people are aware that it doesn't work so then I was kind of looking at what are the other narratives that people use to in a way I think it's like to resolve that tension because that's very difficult if you're working within a system and you're implementing policies that you know are harmful or you know aren't going to work what story do you tell? So then it was people saying things like the public demanded it and we didn't have any choice. And Who is that? Who's that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I see what you're yeah. It's interesting. Like, it's so coded. But the public said yeah. they want justice. But no, but this is the thing. So this, when you interrogate that... Like, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter about the empirical evidence. And feelings. It's feelings. It's the feelings. Yeah. It's the idea. If the yeah. idea exists, the idea that the public will and the defence of the public is the idea that's more important. Completely. And in a way, yeah, like you say, it doesn't really matter. This idea of the public came out so strongly, either in quite a simplistic way where people were saying, people were saying things like the public wanted people to be punished. The public want punishment. And so we had no other choice, even though we knew short sentences weren't going to be effective, even though we were worried that, you know, in some ways, um, normal kind of like procedures weren't being done as they should what choice did we have the public demanded it but like you say and that actually came out in um like official responses as well so there was this riot communities and victims panel report that was like the closest thing they had to an independent inquiry although it was definitely not and that's got statements in it like the public expected punishment and there's never any empirical backing to that <laughs> There's no basis to that. It's just this like common sense assumption that is so powerful and well, works Mail. so well to like justify yeah. it. Is it the Daily Mail? Is it the Sun? But it's. Uh, is it the? But you have to understand how these narratives are so powerful, and the narratives that run through to today, the idea that of contagion from the city, the cities contain yeah. an urban. Even if you go back to the kind of like the Peterloo riots and stuff. Like that, these masses of working class people can organise, but we don't want that to spread. So we need to control them by all means. Yeah. It's really reminding me of the couple of episodes ago with Dan Rennick talking about the responses after Grenfell and talking about state containment. Like he sort of was talking about how we are internationally known as being able to contain conflict mm-hmm. across the world. It's just a sort of another version of that, like that gets implemented but it's important um, the idea that like the narrative yeah, it's scary though isn't it they're so powerful but the like, we so don't even know the half of at it. that time when the riots were going on i was in scotland right so i was yeah. in scotland boom so my pals called me up their response because they're saying they're pissed off but they aren't they're not as articulate as a state response mm-hmm. so they're just saying to you like things are shit we know mm-hmm. things are shit the idea that this can spread to other, elsewhere the fear the perceived fear of that is what narrative that Boris Johnson is using right now. The fear that the far right uses that London's finished, that somehow mm. these are kind of cesspools of like uh, crime and mm. rape and all these kind of, all these bad things. But, but obviously these things happen. The fear that they could spread to the rest, the 87% of the country, mm. the home counties, mm. and that fear that it's coming, it's coming, you're next. So, yeah, and I think, like you say, that is something that was, I don't think necessarily unique to 2011, but more pronounced than in 
like the riots in the 80s, for example, yeah. was the fact that it was happening in different places. <clears throat> but it's interesting to see, in a way, how overemphasized that gets. So a lot of the accounts that I was hearing was people were saying um, society was in meltdown, civilization was under threat, you know, and these like massively <laughs> over dramatic statements. Um, the whole, you know, the whole city was burning. And it's like, empirically, that is not true, you know, like not to undermine the areas that were really badly affected and the people who did lose a lot. Like, I'm not undermining that. That is happened, yeah. really important. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actually how widespread it was, it wasn't. It was isolated areas, you know, and the vast majority of London, let alone the country, was not directly affected. But the way, and I think it's something to do with the media reporting of it as well, Mm. people, and that shapes people's memories or at least how they narrate it, you know, and so they say the whole country was on fire. Of course, you know, it was like an extraordinary threat to the country. Of course, we had to take extraordinary measures, you know, and that kind of makes sense on a common sense level. Mm. But it wasn't. No, and it's like looking at... When you kind of look more closely at those accounts, it's people saying this had never happened before. And so, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. This was completely unprecedented. So the criminal justice system had to act in an unprecedented way. When actually, you know, as a lot of people have written about, when you look at the patterns in particular of riots that happened in Brixton and Liverpool around the country in the 1980s, a lot of the context is very similar. It's a Tory government, it's an austerity regime, it's the police killing a person of colour and then there being some element of cover-up or like lack of justice afterwards. But there's this like amnesia about that. Riots are not new, right? Exactly. So depending, they're all kind of your working class or racial base or both. So from the riots, episode of minor strikes in the 80s, and it's all about the police overreact, the state reacting or having the monopoly on violence and going there and doing things beyond what they need to do mm. and controlling and containing these people. And then the government response has to, has, is to blame those people rather than look at themselves, rather than admit the system's problem. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this is a classic tactic going back to, like I said, a good example again, the people of massacres, they said it was people that done it and the government had to go there as hard and crush this response mm-hmm. but it was really a systemic issue yeah but the problem is the system can't tell itself that it's wrong why not because that means wholesale branch reform means people lose their jobs and, and i don't want to lose Sorry. my job i'm at the top but i but i'm just saying do you know but, what i mean like we we, we, <laughs> I, we do when so often when you and i think you're exactly right in what you're what you're saying here but often when we're talking about this stuff you will say it's the status quo. We can't change. It can't change. It can't change. No, no. And I, I, I think you're right. No, no. I, you know, I, I think. But state, I always want to no, just like interrogate co- that. It's like, what would happen? No, I think the status quo mm. can change. It yeah, can yeah, change. But they don't does, want to. No, no, it does change, right? Because there's different or, people at the top, okay. right? So Max Weber liked. He liked democracy for one reason. It enabled kind of regular change of elites, right? Without kind of too much aggro. So it doesn't matter who's at the top. So it doesn't matter who's Labour, Conservative, but it's a group of elites. Trump, Obama, they're the same social group, right? They don't give two fucks about us, really. Mm. But it, this system allows for the regular change. So status quo do change because we're in a different era. Trump and his cronies now, they're, they're crude, man, but it's mm. a different group of elites and they're still managing it. And then we might get, I don't know, Clinton, whoever, right? So status quo can change. But you want change that acknowledges these people at the bottom, the marginalised. Mm. 
and this is problematic from when I've been looking at it and in relation to whiteness or in relation to patriarchy, the people at the top, for whatever reason, don't need to change. They, they accept change in their own terms. So a good example is women. Women have been campaigning, campaigning, campaigning for the right to be treated equally. Then they said, right, hang on a minute, we'll let you do it. 1921 in America, but it's only white women mm. with property. Yeah. And then it was a bit of a hoo-ha, there's a whole civil rights and all mm. that. We let black women do it in 1965, but it's always on their terms. And this is the problem. If you oh, watch, so, yeah, so, if you, so, so in, in the context of the riots, I see, I see like how, where you're coming from in this. In the context of the riots, there was no way they were going to look at themselves in that moment because that would look like you're appeasing the working classes and their problem with structure. Yeah. If you did something in response to that, then that would question your whole it just makes you look, legitimacy. From things like, again, it's an idea, it's a principle, it's a concept. So, but anything, anytime change happens, it's always on their terms. So, in the in the case of civil rights and campaigning, we've been campaigning anti-racism for years and years, saying the same thing over and over again. And when change happens, is when they want to, when they say, "All right, we'll give you a little something small." Mm-hmm. So basically, you're saying you you can't look to the state. Yeah, it's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not gonna. itself. Yeah, it's not gonna. Or if it does, it's gonna let you in on its own terms. It might, right. let, it might incremental change just to manage to micromanage these riots, right? Right. Because they, they always happen sporadically yeah. but not enough to overthrow the country no. right and in a way i suppose in that vein of thought in a way would it have actually been that much better if the government had said instead of what they did which was you know this is just about criminality this is not about politics in a way would it have been that much better if they said you know like they have done in more so in the 1980s for example and like to some extent some Tory politicians and some Labour politicians did this time of saying this is about austerity and we know that there are problems with certain parts of hmm. the country feeling alienated and disaffected, but then nothing really happens. What well, is it? So you could they can introduce all these things, right? So like in the eighties, the after the riots, you have the, the kind of the sus laws are kind of driving these things. Then the Scarborough report. Scarborough says yeah. it says institutional racism. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> It's a continual term. And you can say these buzzwords, but what really changes? Black boys are still stopped, nine times more like stopped by the police. It's a consistent theme, right? Yeah. And that report said it's institutional racism yeah. within the police. But also it is about uh, pathological black culture. And that is the bit that's kind of forgotten sometimes mm, yeah. about the report, is that actually, yeah, okay, there are some problems within the police, but also it's within really culture. a cultural problem about that black community. And this is a consistent thing, black criminality that hasn't changed. You can talk about the black mugger from the police in the crisis yeah. up until now, and yeah. knife crime. What was really interesting, actually, in, in my interviews about 2011, was that um, people said, oh, wasn't it actually really surprising and really interesting because there are a lot of white and a lot of middle-class young people being involved? Which our is people a- don't do that. Right. Our, people aren't, our people aren't criminals. No. No, but it, it, <laughs> and in a way, it's that got quite a lot of visibility. There was like this kind of paradox, I think, where the young black male was still the main dominant image of the writer definitely mm-hmm. but then there was also supposedly privileged to what extent they were really I don't know but these white definitely young people the millionaire's daughter um, who got a lot of front pages you but know, they had and- to individualize so even though they're from their people they had to individualize them 
in their reporting no. because they yeah. did it. It couldn't be a white problem or no. middle class problem. No. It had to be look at this individual no, that's this, done a. But that's this is the fear. Stolen. This is the fear. Yeah. The contagion, right? Yeah. yeah. Who were yeah infected. It's infecting by this thing. This, and a lot there was a lot of that stuff about like black culture, black culture, you know, hip hop music and stuff. But this is again like if you look at Birth of a Nation. 1921 that movie it's the idea of a contagion yeah. this idea that the black man is going to infect our system mm. infect democracy and these current debates if you put them through to kind of the far right this is what they're talking about multiculturalism black people jews women all these people in the march have infected white male european patriarchy mm-hmm. and it's made it weak mm-hmm. and so this is why we're in this current state where we're kind of britain's in a kind of like so a, they had to they had to punish these well, what what are the dis- disparities in terms of sentencing, particularly there, along I think there was ethnicity? A, yeah, I think there is a slight disparity mm-hmm. in terms of white people getting slightly shorter sentences. I don't know how that compares to the general figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure. They kind of like took on this symbolism, right, where they were saying, actually, there were middle class people. And what that did was, well, obviously, then it's not political. Because if you're middle class and you're a millionaire's daughter, you haven't got any legitimate grievance. You're not out there protesting. So yeah. it is. So they basically use them as another figure to say, look, this is just greed and this is just criminality. What was quite interesting in how people talked about them mm. was, again, there was like some sort of coding there, I think, because that stuff about contagion, like we saw that in David Goodhart and Starkey. Yeah, yeah. Starkey. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whites have become black and it's about like hip hop culture. And patois. And, yeah, yeah, all that. Like that very, very, very obviously mm-hmm. like stark racism is saying it is black culture that is the problem. People I interviewed didn't say that. And I don't think they believe that on any conscious level you know maybe if they did they didn't realize they did i don't know because it's the norm because it's the norm to see us as inherent violent yeah and this this is what i'm saying it was not there explicitly at all Mm. and you know most of the people who i met kind of made a point of saying you know like we are or we are as a as a profession we're all quite liberal we're quite progressive you know most people didn't talk about race at all, which is maybe telling in itself. Well, that's interesting. Not everyone yeah. I interviewed was white either. Yeah, but maybe we'll come on. But to is that. it? But, but it's a system, isn't it? Like you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to be a white individual, but you're part of like no, a white yeah. supremacist legal no, justice. System. And there was something really interesting in how people talked about these white middle class kids. First of all, they called them kids. Mm. And <gasps> that's so. Yeah, the protecting, protecting them. Yeah, about them getting. Um, caught up in it and then going along with it and then getting swept up and overexcited oh god which was really and you know maybe i'm reading too much into it i've only done a small number of interviews whatever but there definitely seems to be a pattern of absolving those people of responsibility and then it's like well what is left unsaid who was leading it who was really inciting it and it's like okay it wasn't the white middle class kids and the like the unusual surprising people so I think there's still when you kind of like look between the lines there's still this imagination of like this imagination of like inherent criminality that Mm. is still very racialized and very classed I think it comes down to the reading I've been doing is how this coding is part of the kind of intellectual framework of 
bequeathed from the Enlightenment, not from the 18th century, but the 19th century mainly, right? So this idea that there's innate notions of badness in black people and innate notions of superiority in white people. Mm-hmm. Now, you will never, they will never speak of it because people don't think in those terms. No. It's conceptually constructed. So when you're talking about those middle-class kids, they construct them in conceptually as kids, children, the kids, that, so they don't know any better. They're overexcited. They're not using yeah. their innate reason that white people are endowed with. Mm-hmm. Black people are just doing their natural criminality. They're behaving naturally. That's how they're behaving. Mm-hmm. And so these kids are swept up in this. And like mm-hmm. I said, it's part of the intellectual framework of the West. I'm no different. As a young black kid, I was swept up in this as well. My, the way I kind of saw things, so I'm deeply involved in street culture. Like, it's natural to me. And you don't even think of it differently. You don't analyse. You don't think of it. It just is. Until you start deconstructing it. And unfortunately, most people, most, that's everyone. Unless you sit in and read lots of books about the Enlightenment or you won't know. It's just so interesting because I think even, I'm really drawn to what you just said, Chloe, about um, them describing the white middle class, in quotations, perpetrators Mm -hmm. as kids. And sort of comparing to how the media and politicians describe black teens and black boys. The, The black with teens and black with boys doesn't have the same sort of protective narrations as that does with white kids. Do you know what I mean? I'm thinking sort of language-wise here, like how that's... natural to me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, when you talk, yeah, black boys are being violent, black teens are being violent, all that stuff. It's like, or black girls are a problem, black girls are aggressive. And it's like, it's those those languages around youth youth are not the same. Right, if you read Mill, right, Mill says people have the right to do liberty. We only tell kids what to do. So when you're in that middle class notion, white kids, I tell you what to do. So they don't have the ability to use their reason. So when they're adults, if they were adults, they'll know better and wouldn't get swept up into this madness. And yeah. they'll live that. They'll use their innate reason to be superior. Black yeah. kids or black males are exactly the same. This is their nature. I expect you to be a thief. But that's what's interesting. Don't you think you it's like yourself. it's such a similar use of language, but it's so far apart from how it is interpreted? Yeah, I think so. I think definitely in terms of like who was seen as responsible mm-hmm. and who is kind of excused from yeah. responsibility there definitely seems to be a sort of pattern there mm-hmm. and then I think that translated into who people were worried about so people were worried about the fact that there were lots of people coming into the criminal justice system because some you know a lot of the people I spoke to were aware that being criminalized and going into in particular into prisons was going to be a very unpleasant and harmful experience for people you know like <laughs> and that stays with you for the rest of your life yeah, yeah of course um not everyone was and a lot of people dismissed that or like minimized that and i think that's another way of did they kind of coping with it Dickheads. yeah but um <laughs> sorry <laughs> but you know and again that was quite coded people were worried about these and sometimes it was explicit explicitly said these white kids sometimes it was like the university students another one you know these kind of more like subtle markers i think of who they're imagining but are they imagining a black woman or a black man when they're talking about university students no i don't think so no but again like how how would you say to the public our systems don't work right our systems don't work the things that we have in place it's an illusion but my it's problem is we haven't even thought about how we would say that we've just no, dismissed it no but the thing is difficult. but the thing is we all know we all know 
and ever since prisons have been in exception in the modern term they don't work so mm. we haven't set a debate whether they're for reform or punishment mm. and this has been a consistent debate since the 19th century mm-hmm. right so this has been a consistent theme so we all know on some level that these things don't work so how do we maintain the illusion right if i say to you they don't work what do we do last time we did that we end up killing the king and it was chaos there was civil war right <laughs> No one wants that. Look, look, the language that they use is civilizational. If we admit that they don't work, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. The alternative is Hobbesian. It's a state of nature, and we can't do that because we're a nation of laws. We have the rule of law. Britain has an image to project around the world. It is a nation of laws. Magna Carta, all these things that emblazons on people's memory. People will say that to you and not even know what Magna Carta is. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize how deeply ingrained it is in our psyche. But don't you think it's interesting yeah. how that sort of language evolves over time? Like Chloe's saying that her interviewees, they're upholders of the system. And they, might, they don't have all the power, but they're part of the system. They will say, oh, we're progressives and we're liberals. Like They're able to say that whilst also being part of a structure which is not at all liberal. Do you know, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's really interesting that like... Like, like it changes over time how you justify it but that sort of justification then falls in line with something which it isn't really in practice i would say when it comes to the system those labels irrelevant yeah left right mm. liberal because it doesn't matter right you're protecting the system and depends what and most systems are structural right yeah so it depends where you are in that system unfortunately just by accident of birth i'm not too high up in that system right yeah. so i feel it tell you where you're born the luck where you're born in that system, where you feel it. Yeah. And, and where you sit in that system gives you a certain perspective. Now, I'm always looking up at the system. Mm. If you're looking down, you don't really... It's cool, isn't it? It's cool. And like, and that's the funny experience, right? So depending where you're born, and it's all luck. And so, so some of my friends... But they don't think that. They think they've worked really hard, say, so as well. No, but, the thing is, but, you <laughs> yeah. can't, but you can't take away from that. But some people, in their context of themselves, are working hard. Yeah. So you can't take away from your individual experience. Because I'm working hard... They're working, it's just that we're just born at different parts of it, right? So I'm trying to convince people now, it's about trying to say to people like, listen, I'm fucked, man, it's not my fault, right? Yeah. Neoliberalism say it's my fault, it's poor people's fault, it's women's fault. It's not, man. Yeah. Like, you've got to give me a hand. Like, literally, since since all the kind of new social movements, go back, from, go back to the 1800s up until now, it's always been us killing ourselves, right? You sort of need to look at yourself and say, what can you truly do? Make, make meaningful interventions into the community. Mm-hmm. Stop punishing me. Like, punishing me, we just keep getting the same results. The mm-hmm. same results, man. And that's not good for you. It's not good for me. And it's not good for, put it in their terms. If you want to make money from everyone, stop doing the same result. We can make more money. If you want to talk about it in capitalist terms. Mm-hmm. But if you keep doing the same, you're going to keep getting the same outcome. And we keep destroying stuff. You're going to keep becoming more draconian. You're going to lock me up. It's going to cost me more. Cash cost you more money. Public's going to feel more unsafe. What are you going to do? Mm. I think, like in terms of the bigger picture, mm. and in terms of like public understanding, yeah, there's got to be a case for saying, like, like you say, like prisons and the criminal justice system is not even on its own terms working. Like it does not keep people safe. It does not make victims feel better. Mm-hmm. It does not rehabilitate, rehabilitate people. No. It does not prevent crime. It doesn't really deter crime. No, not so. And like in the bigger picture, that's quite an easy case to make in some ways. Not in terms of actually bringing about change, but in like logical terms, like you can see that. But think for people who are working within that system it's the logic that you're working within and the structures that you're working in within 
every day and that your whole professional training has instilled in you and everyone you're working with is working to those that logic it's almost like how do you step outside that do you know what i mean yeah, yeah. Like, no, what am i going to get from what am i going to get but from it, it almost seems impossible gargantuan your part of your part of it is so like again when you work for a corporation you're a small minuscule person right and how do you implement change right. and it could be a good change right that could make the company more money but who's going to listen to you if everyone's yeah. doing the one thing yeah can you talk to a little bit what the sentences were saying, how decisions were made in terms of sentencing and what were the sort of higher end versus the lower end? Yeah. So in terms of like actually what the sentencing was, mm. so lots of people were sentenced to custody, lots more. That, I think, OK, maybe you've got to go back a few steps. Yeah, yeah let's right? go back. So there's been a lot of focus on the sentencing, yeah. which was much harsher than it would be normally for those sort of crimes because it happened in a riot context. And that has got a fair bit of attention, but there's some really useful work that shows that actually you can't just look at the sentencing. You've got to go back to the police's approach Mm -hmm. in that they made lots of arrests for the kinds of offences or acts that wouldn't even normally warrant an arrest. And then you get prosecution and then um, offences that normally would not be prosecuted were. So it's like at each stage of the process there's a kind of a severity that wouldn't normally be there that all kind of culminates in the sentencing, but it's not just about the sentencing. So there's a prosecution, and they basically deviated from their usual process. So normally, in order for them to take forward a prosecution, it's got to pass the test of there being enough evidence for them to be able to realistically get a conviction. So if there's no evidence, they can't take it forward. But it's also got to be in the public interest. And that involves like a lot of different factors, but it's normally about the severity of the offence and the impact that it's had on the community and the person who's committed it. So if it's someone who has uh, committed lots of offences before, it's much more likely to be seen as in the public interest to prosecute it. Whereas if it's a very young person, no previous convictions, what they call somebody of like good character, it's less likely to be. But basically what happened in the riots, and this is all in the public realm, is that they said if an offence happened in the riots, it is almost certainly within the public interest to prosecute it. So lots of cases that normally would have been dropped at that stage went forward. And that's where you see lots of these cases like stolen bottles of water, very, very young children, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, whose cases were being prosecuted that normally... You know, normally the general logic, to be fair, is, especially for children, if you can avoid drawing them into the system, you do, because everyone knows that once you've got drawn into the system as a child or a teenager, what that results in is like a cycle where you kind of get stuck in the system. So most people agree that at least for children you've got to just do you think that do you think that's true for all children do you think people think that for all children no probably not yeah it's probably very yeah yeah yeah. um, racialized yeah yeah, i'm sure sure. but at least in terms of like the narrative that's what i say but that kind of went out the window basically Mm -hmm. so sorry i'm going off course but basically to say then it was about the types of courts that they that the cases got processed in so a lot more went to the crown court which has higher sentencing powers than magistrates courts god 
I didn't know that. that. Yeah, I just assumed so that we went to magistrates because it's like like because it's like so theft and stuff first, and damage. Yeah. That's like magistrate. Yeah. So they went to Crown Court. Yeah, or more cases than normal. So everything goes to the magistrates first, but then more than normal went up to the Crown Court and within magistrates courts. They tended to be seen by um, district judges who are qualified judges rather than um, benches of magistrates who are lay people who aren't legally qualified, who tend to be much slower in processing cases, but also tend to be more lenient in how they sentence. So there were all these different factors that fed into the sentencing. Can I, can I, just, can I just come in quickly? And I really want you to carry on with the point that you're making, but I just want to take a branch off slightly so thinking about the separation of powers legislature the parliament um yeah. the judiciary and the government if your interviewees were saying we had to do this we had to do this who's telling them in their ear so yeah. a politician saying to the judiciary that we need to give harsher sentences or do you know what do, do you yeah, understand what i'm is, saying no, like really it question, feels like yeah. really why do the judiciary think that stuff's in the public interest in this context if they're not getting pressure from... They might be getting pressure, but I think it's... I wouldn't say it's a clear-cut answer. Like, there would be some people saying that, but also it's the idea that they've broken the law, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying... But Chloe's point is that all this stuff, like, was, was exacerbated and everything was harsher. Yeah, and but my point is, like, if if they're saying they're independent of but, everyone, yeah. then but, 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 but surely they're still part of the state, right? Yeah, they're still part of the state, but they, but, but they but, go on and on about how they're... No, but, but they're checks on each other, right? But they all represent the state. Yeah. And at the moment, the state's war's being challenged and challenged in a way that they don't like, right? But it feels slightly like... And I know, obviously, Chloe, you've argued this and you're you're making these wider points, but... And I know I'm not saying anything new here, but it just feels like this is a very clear example of the fact that it's not really, it's a very but, flawed democracy, so, isn't it? So when, like, the, when it came to my head, right, so I was in Guildhall the other day, right, there's a statue of Pitt the Younger, right? And then on Pitt the Younger, there's an inscription. What happened in France will never happen over here. There's been no social revolutions in the UK. Yeah. Europe, it's a, it's a consistent thing from 1789 all through the, 18, all through the 19th mm, century. Mm. And they, all, all European countries have that, this contagion, it happened. Mm. Working class people, women, all these radicals organising, causing problems for them. But it's never happened here. And that inscription in Guildhall matters because that's what you're seeing here. Yeah. The same thing. The state will not tolerate this. Yeah. And it doesn't matter who it is. It could be minor strikes. It could be the women. So when women were asking to vote, if you saw what the politicians were saying about women the day before the vote, talking in civilizations, if we give women the, the, the vote, things will go to shit, the country will fall to yeah. pieces. So the state would take women, beat them and rape them. Yeah. The yeah. state police would do that. And these weren't these weren't working class women, these were middle class white women. Yeah. Because the state will not tolerate it being challenged. That and that's what so, and that's why I was that's and that's a really interesting point, Tien, does back up what I'm saying here. Like it's really interesting how the state justifies itself through these notions of a separation of power. But this example in the riots basically shows that is it a clear example that that's a, a myth, really? Well, I think, yeah, so, right, first so, of all, there's that yeah. question about formal separation of powers. Mm -hmm. And for sure, like, what everyone said to me fairly early on in the interview was, you know, we are completely independent, whether that's as as judges or as prosecutors, you know, we're independent, we are not influenced by central government and um, by the executive. Bullshit. Whether or not that is true in terms of like formal mechanisms, 
you know and there was like there was some controversy about had basically had there been like direct pressure from central government and ministers onto the courts to react in a certain way whether that happened formally or not i don't know but i kind of think it doesn't matter because even if there is formal independence how can you say there is no political influence when you've got the prime minister standing up and saying this is criminality pure and simple and the courts are going to respond in this way and david cameron stood up and said i can't remember his exact words but basically if you get arrested or if you go out and get involved in the riots, you should expect to go to prison. Mm-hmm. He said that, Theresa May said that. She was Home Secretary at the time. So, and they were literally making statements about the kinds of sentences people would get. So then it's impossible to see how the courts, even if there is no formal pressure on them, within that context, it's very difficult to see how the courts would go dramatically against that. 100%. Yeah. Plus, yeah. plus they're, they're the same status groups, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. You're right. my, same class. You're my yeah. pals. You're my, we, so, listen, yeah. this, this is like... We've been to uni together. Listen, so, yeah. so I don't have to speak to you formally. It's like with all the banks. When I used to go to all the meetings, they all, they all go different banks, and we all do it, but there's all these kind of laws to say separate with the powers. But at lunch, they're all talking to each other. Yeah. Mm. Because it's the same status group. This is what we do. We hang around mm. with each other. So you've got to talk about yeah. work. You've got to talk about things that affect you. Mm. And I don't want my daughter hanging around with Jamal from Brixton because <laughs> he's got he's got a stone lining jacket. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's it's just one of them things, isn't it? Yeah. I Sorry, that, I, I made you that's... I made you digress there. I just wanted to ask that point before. No, I, I think forgot you're totally it. right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think that is why, as sociologists, it's not just about looking at you know because there was analysis from like legal scholars saying was had something gone awry in legal terms you know and was there actually illegal practice in terms of how things were being done and there weren't the normal standards in terms of like the evidence um, that needed to be produced for cases there weren't the normal standards weren't being met in terms of um, people's access to legal advice and all those things and that is really important. But it's not just about those legal mechanisms. I think that's why, as sociologists, you've got to look at what is like the cultural and ideological context that these things happen mm-hmm. in. Because even if everything was done by the book legally, that's not to say it's and, the and, right thing, you know. And, and this obviously. is the thing. So if you're, if it's an idea, an ideological, sorry, if it's an ideological, ideological thing, how do you go about not even changing that, but shifting it? And this is not even sometimes shifting it, making people understand that it's a it's an idea that's been created at some point and maintained and sustained by various people, consciously, subconsciously. So when you're looking at things like this, that's an idea. How do you freeze an idea in place by policy? So effectively, you freeze power in place because power is it flows back and forth, back and forth. But you frame, you form a policy and it frames it in place in law. So how do you make people who are in it? see it because to them what i've been taught at school that's what i understand mm. so that's true mm. and it's backed up by books i've gone to university i've got a, I've got a certificate about it so that's normal that's right isn't it mm-hmm. and this is well i've come to the point if i'm talking about whiteness on a kind of a kind of ontological level i it's real to them but they don't know any different and so how how can we how can we be critical of this thing yeah when it's mm. normal from my perspective, mm. it's fucked up, right? Mm. I was looking at the Me Too movement, and all of a sudden, I'm like, uh, "What? Why are you getting all upset still? Like, I didn't understand, but, but you had to change." But they don't understand what they're still doing wrong. 
it's the idea they have to change, but they don't can't get it. You can't see it. So how could they, how do you ever change that? Mm. You can have all the laws in place, and there is laws in place. And they're culturally you can put women in films, but they still don't get it. Why? Because it's normal. Mm. And my position as a centre is so, I'm so central to it, I can't understand what you're on about. And even when you tell me, even if you present me evidence, it doesn't matter. It's the idea that's most important. And the idea that I am I can do what I want because I'm a man. And that's, that's so central to the whole thing. It doesn't matter what if you present me with evidence. And the same with race. If you present me with evidence that black people are not innately criminals, that I'm not stupid, it doesn't matter. I hear people saying, with the same, not even the super racist stuff, dumb stuff. Tease, your hair like a sponge. Mm. What the fuck, man? Yeah. No, definitely. I know what you mean. Let's roll it back. Sorry, should we roll it back to what, when you were talking about the sentencing? So you were talking about the Crown Court. Right. Sorry, I made us really digress there, but no, it's no, all no, relevant. Yeah, um, okay. okay, so let's go back to that. So basically, the net result of all those sort of factors that I talked about, the net result was in the sentencing. So I think on average, oh, and there are other bits as well, like there's a lot around like um, remand, so a lot of people remanded to custody. Really? For what? normally wouldn't have been, for really minor offences. And you don't, that doesn't happen. So normally, yeah, normally again, it has. it's kind of decided on the balance of how likely you are to go out and re-offend. You know, if you are, so if you're arrested and charged for murder, you're not going to be... You're not going to be given bail and allowed back out. You're going to be remanded in custody because you're seen as potentially dangerous, right? Mm. And it's also how likely you are seen, uh, how likely it is they think you are to abscond or, you know, go away and not come back for your hearing or your trial. So normally I think it's like 10% of serious cases, and I'm not exactly sure how they define that, but 10% of serious cases, people will be remanded in custody. So straight into prison after your first hearing um and in the riots i think it was something like 60 percent of people were remanded to custody Mm. so that is massive and there was lots of problems with overcrowding and shortage of like cell spaces and people being sent all over the country and again including lots of very young people away from their families away from their families yeah um or when where people were given bail, they were given bail conditions that were like really impossible to mm. meet. Um, so there was that as well. But again, I'm going off course. Okay, so sentencing, um, the average sentence that people were given for like riot related offences, I think was 17 months. And that is about four times longer than it would be for similar offences if you committed them the week before when the riot wasn't happening. Okay. So that was for things That's like mad. theft and burglary and some like violence sort of things. <sighs> so it's long, it's long. Mm. And I think everyone's like heard those examples about, um, I think the youngest person who was convicted was 11. And that was someone who I think stole a bin from a department store. And then Stop. there were the cases where people got, I think about six months for uh, stealing bottles of water or not even necessarily stealing them but um, being in that environment being in that, env- that environment people, lots of people who um, were convicted of handling stolen goods who did, weren't anywhere near what was happening but kept, were given things um, and then there was like the really famous case which was one of the, the ones that went to the Court of Appeal which was two uh, young boys I think they were 16 um, 
who put facebook statuses up saying let's go and riot in um i think one was in warrington and one was in northwich places where nothing happened and and the post got taken down either by themselves or by the police and nothing happened as a result of their posts and they both got i think four year sentences <laughs> oh my in new god spending institutions <laughs> i'm but and, dead. and they and that was one so then there were a number of cases that together <gasps> went to the court of appeal because they seemed so disproportionate and so out of line with normal practice mm-hmm. whether you think normal practice is good anyway is a different question but they were like so wildly out of proportion <clears throat> that they went to the court of appeal <clears throat> and they were upheld so the what? Court of Appeal said, yes, because this happened in a riot context, because the overall damage that happened in the riots <clears throat> was so great, even if these offences individually did not result in any okay. harm or impact, because they happened within this context, you've got to sentence them in line with that. And so once that precedent was set, <clears throat> that case then allowed, and that was... That was a few months after the riots, but what that meant was that all the cases that came after that, they had this legal precedent to say, this happened in the riots, therefore the normal sentencing approach doesn't apply. Okay. I'm finished. But, I, I don't have anything more to say. But, but, I'm, I'm, li- I'm literally... But, but that makes sense, right? So oh, when, when I was in God Scotland, sake. the attitude obviously Scotland's so far away, Edinburgh, Glasgow, they're saying, look at London, it's on fire. Mm-hmm. It's on fire. And this is our capital city, it's on fire. Now, they're seeing what's reported in the media, so you're not getting a clear picture, but the idea that this could happen here, mm. the idea, so what's what's going to be the state response? Mm. The state that was... doesn't even, oh, I don't know, T, I had to question you a little bit on that one, because that case of the Facebook post, like, but no, but, that seems slightly, but, like, I know, not but, in line with... But you're not looking the... from the state's point of view. This is the perception, right? And this is a narrative that runs through that... Steve Bannon talks about my listen. All the skinheads, I, all people I've interviewed, right, I speak to, London's finished. There's there's books about this. Yeah, London's yeah. finished. Sweden's finished. These areas, these yeah. pockets, and it's going to spread elsewhere. Mm. So what do you do? And it's the same with the chicken, the chicken box. Oh, with so the because knives. okay, so you're so, so because they were outside of London. Yeah. And they've said this, like, they're like, yeah, shit. it's shit. It's going to spread. And gonna, how yeah. do you make people feel safe? Like this chicken. Like, even if it doesn't, see, even if it doesn't actually see happen. See the see the drug thing, right? The county line thing, right? Drugs are everywhere, yeah. everywhere, right? We know that for a fact. But it's the fact that these there's county line gangs and they put bringing children to do it and they're pushing drugs in. The fear now everyone knows drugs are there, mm-hmm. right? But now it's the fear that they're being pushed that they're going to take over. It's that fear mm-hmm. they're coming to an area near you and the response normally coming to an area near you. the response normally is flight, isn't it? White flight. That's what happens when yeah. the area feels it's going to come with white flight. White people move. So the East End when I grew up predominantly white people then when the Bengalis came in the 80s they all fled to East Essex and that's a madness because all my friends live in Essex now and if you said to them why they couldn't tell you why but it, literally it's because they saw lots of Asians coming and the Asians weren't living next to them but it was close to them in proximity to them and they left whole families man mm. people that I grew up with who ran shops for like 30 40 years up to left in the relation to the riots a lot of it is about proximities isn't it would you say would you say that chloe like i had to show that it's not okay for this to happen and if it does happen it's gonna yeah as tiso said come to a neighborhood near you and that is definitely that was i would say the overriding justification that people used was that it was out of control and they had to put a stop to it because otherwise it was going to spread and in one sense, it's like that that kind of makes sense, right? You can 
whether you think it's going to be effective or not is like a different matter but you can see the logic to it but actually lots of these cases were being sentenced after the riots had come to an end the riots only lasted a few days so a lot of these these cases were being sentenced after that direct threat had gone and they were still being sentenced very harshly so then you haven't got the justification of, you know, we need to bring this to an end and we need to stop it spreading, because it had already stopped. But I think, so, when the state reacts, like, so the rea- in, the, in the context of, of kind of state oppression, rights happen sporadically all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's just let the people know that there's a consistent theme here that you will get punished. Right, but, so for the next time. Yeah, punishment's yeah. always the key thing. I'm not looking to reform. Yeah. And again, if you kind of flip it to the current movement, the emphasis is always on more punishment, more punishment. And what else can I can you actually do to me? Like pretty Patel, like she's actually, actually saying the only thing she can do left is bring kill back, you. Is bring back to take your life yeah. away from you, right? This is the kind of thing that you're in. The elite always seek to punish. It's not reform. It's never about reform, but it's about social control. And as sociologists, we know we know about these forms that we have, these forms of oppression to control groups of people. Mm-hmm. So if you come to my bit, you've got all the bits for social control. Gambling, drinking, dance halls, drugs, anything that you want, you can get, but it maintains in that same area. Mm. So I'll get up in the morning every day and I'll see heroin dealers every morning. Not one policeman, not one. I'll see heroin dealers every morning. Mm. And this is the point. But it's controlled. Yeah, So when the middle class people start complaining, so the middle class start complaining and whopping. And the police would say, why are the police not doing anything? They've asked them, this is happening now. Wapping's got its own postcode now, and the police are saying, why didn't you do anything? People are saying, oh, well, this and So what what Wapping done? They privatised and bought their own police force. 80 grand a year it's going to cost them. The residents have got together, it's going to cost them 80 grand to get their own private security to patrol Wapping. But that's not going to stop it because the police don't care because it's controlled, right? If it went to Mayfair, it's a different thing. If it went to Bishop's Avenue, it's a different thing. They've got their own drug dealers. It's different channels, right? Mm. But the state can't be seen to be challenged as long as I can keep it around here it is it's it's pretty scary to be honest um what would be your sort of like one of your if you had to give like three key findings mm. that you feel like you've had and like in briefest terms if you could explain them what would they be I think one of the things that I'm trying to think about is a little bit what we talked about earlier like what is not said and what is forgotten and what is ignored and what is avoided and what is silenced I think that is really important so thinking about those in my I tell Les your supervisor (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of right so I'm kind of breaking it down into like four main points really right so the first one is about what definitions of the riots people were working with and that's what we talked about so it was depoliticized so people People literally forgot that Mark Duggan had been killed. So some of the people I was talking to were saying, oh, remind me, like, what was it that happened? What was it that started no, they the didn't. riots? Yeah, and people had forgotten. <laughs> Fucking Which actually is not that surprising because in the political discourse and, like, the media coverage of the riots, that was completely separated. You know, there was so little attention on Mark <gasps> Duggan's death that it's... That wasn't part of like the popular understanding of what the riots were in a lot of ways. But I would just like I would just say on one point there to you is that I think it's unsurprising, but for that demographic, if you ask working class people in oh, London, yeah, they'll course, tell you yeah. the first thing they'll tell you is Mark Duggan being yeah, killed. Of yeah, of course. So it's very yeah. much thinking about that 
understanding within the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And also, it's what they tell me, mm-hmm. and I've got to think about my position within it. Mm-hmm. And that's quite interesting. Like, I'm white, mm-hmm. I am middle class. It was quite interesting to see how they, how people I was interviewing perceive me. And I think I was like a bit of an ambiguous character where they didn't quite understand who I was. And a lot of the time they thought I was a legal student. So they were explaining the ins and outs. Obviously I had told them what I was doing. Yeah. But people thought I was a law student, so they were explaining the legal ins and outs. And in a way people tell you what they think you want to hear right guys you can hear more about chloe's positionality in the research if you subscribe to patreon and listen to our season <laughs> fees episodes yeah, yeah. hopefully she'll stay and talk to us about that but okay. yeah so yeah, one so more point one more now. point yeah. yeah okay so basically what fell away and was forgotten from the kind of shared narrative of what the riots were i think was really important um and also people's like imaginations of what the criminal justice system is people who work within it I think there is also a lot of denial in quite subtle ways about the like inherent violence and discrimination that the criminal justice system inflicts and people find quite kind of subtle ways to avoid confronting that I think because that has very serious implications for their own understanding of themselves and their moral positions and their professions and their organizations so i think that sums it up <laughs> that's so interesting yeah, but sick, sad and angry and but it's real but yeah, life man it's, like, real, it's, it's real. real life and it's big it's real. It's and big. it's interviewing elites as well which we need more of like that's but, it's such important research i don't know chloe i was gonna say did, when you was doing it did you think it tells you a story that you didn't know in a way, no, because a lot of it was very um, consistent with what we heard in the political rhetoric and what we heard in the media, but much less extreme and much less um, explicit. But, you know, they were the dominant narratives. So in a way, it wasn't that surprising to hear them. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting then was as the interviews went on, people were much more open and much more reflective. And actually, yeah, the kind of um, uncomfortable positions that people are in was really interesting. And the fact that people kind of know that there are elements of their jobs and their organisations and the system that they work within that they don't agree with, that was quite surprising to me. Mm. And the fact that it's it wasn't as clear-cut as prosecutors on this side and defence lawyers on the other side and it wasn't as clear-cut as you know the prosecutors have the conservative views and the defence lawyers have the liberal views it wasn't like that okay and it's almost like what you say where there's it's a system you know and like you say it works as a system and that was yeah that was quite interesting to see Thank you so much, Chloe, for joining us. That was so, so interesting. Going to join us for another 10 minutes, if you can, yeah, for our T's and C's, for our Patreon supporters. Again, if you are able to, we, under, we completely understand not, not everyone is, but it's just a means to keep the podcast going. It's not about us taking any sort of salary or anything like that. It's about production and hosting the podcast online for you guys. Um, but yes, yeah, so if you are able to support us, please do. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much.